We've been going through the discourses of Matthew, the five sermons that he preaches in the book of Matthew. And uh, we've covered the Sermon on the Mount. We're on like our 20th week, which is crazy. But um, we did the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus kind of goes underneath where uh, he gets below the surface. He's like, hey, you've heard it said. I'm saying unto you, go deeper than that. I'm saying unto you, go down to, to your guts and your heart and find out what's inside of you. Then we did the missional discourse where Jesus um, sent out his disciples. He gave them power um, to go out and he gave them a message. says, go and tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that something new is starting. And he sent them out and, uh, and told them where to go, what to say, who to talk to. Um, and we covered that. And then we did the parabolic discourse, which is this entire sermon Jesus puts together just off parables, just off little stories. And, uh, and we picked some of those apart and, uh, and got some good stuff. And now we're in what's uh, in smart circles called the ecclesiological discourse. In normal people talk, that's the discourse on the church, um, where Jesus talks about what it means to be the church and what it means to, uh, to do church. And, and, uh, and this is a, a sermon about heart posture. This, he doesn't give us very much, he doesn't give us any how answers. He doesn't tell us how to do church. He doesn't tell us what kind of music to use or when to meet or how to dress or any of that stuff. He doesn't give us any hows. He doesn't even really spend much time on the who's. He gives us the why. Jesus spends most of the time on the why we do church. And that's what we're mostly going to talk about tonight. But, um, but this whole sermon, we talked last week about how this whole sermon um, it seems to be a little bit impromptu. It seems to come from this question that they asked. They were all sitting together and they said, hey, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who's the absolute star in the kingdom of heaven? Like who, who's on top? And Jesus um, starts into this kind of, uh, well, really preaches this entire, I feel like I'm, I can't see Steph. There we go. Hey, Steph. Um, and, uh, and, and Jesus launches into this, uh, this sermon based on this question. They ask this question and he preaches a whole sermon on it. So obviously he had this one just pretty much locked and loaded and ready to give it a moment's notice because as soon as they ask, this is what he's ready with. And, and he starts with this kind of cultural joke, that, that not much of a joke, not very funny, haha, but, um, but something that would have been familiar, uh, which was the, the Roman legal system we talked last week about the way it was put together and how there was these hierarchies and and, uh, and you had the, the senatorial and equestrial order, and then you had the citizens underneath that, and the peregrines underneath that. And something I forgot to mention last week is that Israel would have been a peregrine nation. It would have been a, a, a nation of foreigners. They weren't Roman citizens. They weren't accepted as citizens, even though they were part of the empire. Um, and so uh, they had a lower rank than a citizen. Um, and then under that was the slave class. And the children ranked somewhere in terms of legal protection and things like that. Kids rank down with slaves. Um, obviously, parents still love their kids back then. Things weren't so backwards that, you know, parents didn't care about their kids. But in terms of protection and, and what the law would do for kids, really low, really, really low. And so it, was, it would have been pretty common. And they, they had this system whereby you could only offend going up. So something a senator, you know, could treat someone below him a certain way and it wasn't seen as an offense. They were allowed to do that. But if you reverse it and someone in the citizen class does something to a senator, it was seen as an offense and you could be punished for it. So it's basically the system whereby the higher are you up on the, on the thing, the more access you have to the judicial system. So nothing like our system today, completely backwards 
from that's a joke. It's absolutely exactly like our system today. But um, but no. Uh, and so there was these almost jokes and things. It's been in a couple writings where they would say things like, "Hey, make sure you don't offend a senator. They'll tie you in a bag and throw you in the river." Like it was a it was a pretty well known. Um, thing and, and Israel, it, it would have been common for them to complain about this, to complain about, you know, boy, you better make sure you don't look at that guy. There's actually a, um, a senator who had such a uh, kind of a elitist attitude that somebody looked at him wrong in the street and he had the guy's eye put out. And a lot of people think that's, that's why Jesus says, if your eye offends you, cut it out. He's, he's actually playing on this thing that was relatively well known, like, Whatever you do, don't look at don't look at a senator wrong. They'll put your eye out, you know, type thing. And so Jesus flips the script on him, and he takes what would have been kind of the lowest ranking citizen in the crowd, a kid, and they said, "Who's the greatest?" And he pulls this kid up, and he and he says, "Right here, this is this is the greatest. Whatever you do, don't offend one of these." Well, I tell you what, they'll tie a millstone around your neck and throw you in the in the sea if you do that, or if your eye offends you, if you look at this kid wrong, put your eye out. So most likely he was being a little bit tongue in cheek, but what he was trying to do is flip the social class and say, what you're doing is you're trying to figure out who you can look down on. You're trying to figure out you know, what the orders I'm telling you in the kingdom, it's the other way. In the kingdom, those that we think are least, and he, and he actually says this line in there, unless you turn and, and become like a child, and, and I don't think he means a, a child exactly, but unless you turn and see yourself in those that you look down on, unless you can turn and find yourself in their story, you can't even access the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're not moving in the kingdom of heaven yet. As long as you're looking down on people, that's not the kingdom. And so he sets up this thing, and then he gets into tonight's thing, and he, and he starts it with a, with a statement that's kind of tying off of that. Um, am I going to work here? Oh, no title this week, apparently. Um, he says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. So Jesus sets off right off the bat and tells us what this teaching is going to be about. This next section is going to be about the lost. It's about the lost. So remember, this is talking about our heart posture. This, and this isn't going to. This message is going to kind of jumble around and go back and forth. But there's no other way for me to put it together. So this isn't going to be super clean. But we're just going to ramble together. Because um, generally, we do two things with this passage. This is the passage of the lost sheep. This is where he says. Um, where he says, you know, this, this, this shepherd goes out and leaves the 99 and goes and finds this one lost sheep. And generally we do two things with this. We make this about God and we say, God is so awesome. Look how amazing he is. He leaves the 99 and chases down the one. He's so incredible. God is so gracious, which is absolutely true. And I think that bears out in this passage. And the other thing we do is we kind of make it about us and we say, you know, even if God would leave the 99 just for you, he loves you. If no one else on earth, he still would have came and died because it's you. We make this about the individual, which also, I think, completely bears out in the passage. But there's something, although they're both true, although it's God is awesome and it is about his goodness and he does care about the individual and does want to change individual hearts, which is, I think, where God does most of his work in the individual hearts. And, and, and we've got an issue in our country where we have broken systems and, and we've got this big systemic issues I think the way God usually deals with it is he changes hearts and then he sends those hearts to change systems. And so he does call, he, he, he works on our hearts so that he can call us to go work on systems and to go fix things. And God doesn't usually step in and intervene in the system. He, he expects us to do that. But that was 
totally on the side. It had nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. But in, in classic Jesus style here, um, he challenges us deeper, I think, with this passage. He takes it to another step. And what I think he actually does is he calls um, our perceptions, our values into question with this passage. He, he changes it up a little. And I think most of it's in the tone. So look, look at this. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go into the mountains seeking the one that is, that is straying? See, we, we tend to talk about how this is talking about this crazy love that this shepherd has, this, this crazy you know, compassion and grace that the shepherd has. And if you look at the tone, that doesn't seem to be what he's saying at all. I don't think the tone bears that out. Let's look at it again. He says, what do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and loses one, does not he leave the 99 and go in the mountains? The inferred answer is yes. The inferred answer is absolutely. Who wouldn't? And I grew up, on, I grew up working a dairy farm and, and never did we get a call saying, hey, your pastor's got out, or your cow's got out of the east pasture you know, and go, you know what? There's like 300 head of cattle on here. Let that one go. I'm not worried about it. Like, no, any farmer, you can't do business that way. Any farmer who loses a cow, loses a sheep, loses something, goes and gets it, chases it down. That, that, and, and what Jesus is playing on here is, is this assumed yes. Well, yeah, any man would do that. Of course a man would. You, you can't do business just letting sheep wander off. You know, that's your job is to, is if you've got 100, you hang on to 100. And so he's, he's doing something a little bit different here with this uh, inferred yes. And remember, this all starts with this question, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Which is a, a kind of a, a selfish question, if we're honest with it. They, they want to know, you know, how do, I, how do I move up rank and how do I look down on people who are down rank? Did I just move something? I did. There we go. Um, and so Jesus challenges this with this value question. What do you value? And here's how I think he says it. Who among you would not chase down a sheep uh, if it got away and yet you would look down on another human I think, I think he's challenging their value here I mean what man what man wouldn't chase down his property if it walks away and yet in your question you're devaluing people so he's creating a value barrier between this sheep that almost anybody would chase down and this person that almost anybody at this moment is willing to look down on and to turn their back on. And actually a question like this happens in, in the story of Jonah. Uh, most of us are pretty familiar with that. Where, But at the end, there's a, a ton that happens in this last little couple paragraphs uh, where Jonah finally goes and he preaches to the city that, that, that it's going to be destroyed if they don't repent. The city's going to be torn, torn down. And he goes up on the hill and he sits to watch it happen. Like, and he's stoked because these are the enemies of Israel and they're about to be torn down, except that Nineveh repents, which is the whole reason he didn't want to come because he knew the way God works and he knew if they repented, God wouldn't do it. And so he didn't even want to deliver the message of, of judgment because if he did, they might repent. And so he's sitting up here and they don't, uh, they don't, uh, they don't get destroyed. And Jonah's upset and, and God causes a plant, it says, to grow up over Jonah something with broad leaves that casts a lot of shade. Jonah's sitting under the shade, enjoying the shade, and settles there for a second. And then it says that God sent, it's actually the word provided. It's actually a derivative of the word manna. 
um, a, a worm. He provided a worm, which that's been messing with me all day. What happens when God provides you with something to destroy what you have? Ooh. Anyway, that has nothing to do with what I'm doing, other than the fact that it's tormenting me. But um, So what happens when God provides a worm to take away your shade? What happened to Jonah was he wanted to commit suicide. He was like, God, just take my life. It's not even worth living. And God hits him with this value question. He says, you loved that plant that you did nothing to, to cause to grow. And you did nothing to destroy it. And, and yet you lament the loss of a plant and you thought I was going to be okay destroying thousands of people. And then he adds, not to mention animals, which is I love that God's even concerned about the animals of Nineveh. And so it's the same value question. Like you, you get so consumed with these things that you have and these things that bring you comfort that you're, you're, and you don't care about thousands of humans in Nineveh. Same question I think Jesus is, is playing with here. Jesus is asking this question, and, and it's in response to who is the greatest? When, of course, what they mean is who can we despise? Who can we look down on? Because once you know who the in crowd is, then you can define and establish the out crowd, right? Once you know who's in, once you know who's valuable, now you've defined the invaluable, the out crowd. And you can start to tribalize and say, you know, well, I, I'm, now I know the, the group I want to be in and now I know I can turn my back on and despise this group because they're not in. They're not one of us. They're not one of the greatest. And frankly, I think this is one of the most difficult parts about serving Jesus is anytime you begin to advocate for Jesus, you find yourself forced to advocate for people. Like you, you set out and you're like, I, I just want Jesus. I want Jesus to be the center of my life. And he's like, Awesome. Let people be the center of your life. And you're like, God, I just want to serve you. I just want to serve God. He's like, amazing. Serve people. And you're like, just you and me, God. Just you and me alone. And he's like, yeah, just you and me alone in church. Get in church. Like, and, and like any time you, you find yourself going after Jesus, you find him pushing you to people, which makes it complicated because uh, people are hard. Have you ever noticed how amazing you are when you're by yourself? Like, you ever notice how much patience you have when your kids aren't around? Like, you are just a patience machine when the kids aren't there, right? You ever notice how gentle and, and peaceful you are when you're the only car on the highway and you're just flying along and just, just peace in your heart? You ever notice that? Have you ever noticed how, how truthful and honest you are as long as there's no one asking probing questions into your life? and there's no reason to tell a lie. You're just an honest, good person until someone starts asking questions. How giving you are until someone has a need. Like it's, it's the people that make you a pain in the butt. That's what brings up. And, and, and I honestly don't think that's true. I, and I think this is a mistake we have. We think that people can make us angry. We think that people can make us jealous. We think that people can make us bitter, which isn't the way it works. The most a person can do is poke a little hole in your facade to just, to just poke a little hole in your soul and then some of that anger that's in there sneaks out and slips out. Some of that bitterness that's in there finds its way out into the open because some jerk poked a hole. But it's, they're not making you... Any, nobody can make you anything. It's who you are. 
And they just let a little bit of it out sometimes. But people make it complicated. And then, and then comes Jesus and not only tells us to, uh, to love the, the sheep that, you know, that do what they're supposed to do and who act the way they're supposed to act and who act like us and look like us and who, who are good sheep. He tells us to love the nutcase that wanders off by itself and, and, and won't follow any of the rules and won't do what it's supposed to do. It won't stay in the pen. It gets out and, and he's, he's challenging us to love even those. Jesus says you'd run into the wilderness to find a lost sheep and you won't lift a finger to help a fellow human get home. Or maybe we could say it this way. You will spend $100 a month on cable. Too early? Is it too early in the sermon for that kind of talk? You'll run all over the world to get your kids to sports practice. You'll sit in the cold, dark sidewalk on Black Friday to get a cheap TV. You'll scrub your house from top to bottom to invite over people who already love you and don't care what your house looks like. You'll spend $6 on a pumpkin spice latte. If I stay long enough, I'll get all of us. i got a list. But what will you do for the lost? Jesus is challenging our values. The assumption is they'll chase the sheep. Who is the greatest? Am I at least better than that guy, Jesus? Can I at least give up on that person? Have they gone... Have, has, has this crowd at least gone so far and gotten so far away that I could not worry about them? Is, is this group so offensive that I can, I can give up? And Jesus' answer is like, really? You would despise one of these? You'd treat a sheep better than one of these? So Jesus is calling our perceptions of, of what is truly valuable into question. But he's also going after our perception of God which I think is important. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, or even so it is, even so it is not the will of your Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So I think Jesus here is uncovering uh, kind of a fundamental flaw in the way we think about God sometimes is uh, the people. So he, the, the assumption here is that the shepherd will chase the sheep because shepherds are good and honest and compassionate, unlike God. Like that, that's kind of the comparison. He's like, he's like, if like, how is it that you think you're more caring that you would chase down a sheep, that you would bring in a lost one. And somehow you think that's not the center of God's heart. Like somehow you're more compassionate than God. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Like we have this, this feeling that somehow, um, you know, yeah, of course we take care of our kids. We love our kids. So we want them to, you know, of course we care for our kids. Of course we're nice to the people who love us. But God, you've got to watch out for that guy because you don't know. And, and Jesus is calling that into question. In both verses, he's revealing that we tend to think we're more loving 
and graceful than God. Like, of course, a farmer would chase down his sheep, but not God. And it seems like the New Testament writers were kind of captivated with this as well because it was a theme they all kind of hung on to. Paul said, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Not death, nor life, nor this, nor that, nor the other. Like, he gives this huge list and that cannot separate us from God's love. Peter said, God doesn't want any to perish. The reason he's patient in return, he doesn't want any to perish, but that he wills that all should come to repentance. John pushes it so far to say, of course you have to love one another. God is love. And here's the thing, I don't think these guys got this from their upbringing. I don't think they got this from the way Torah was being taught in their day. I, I don't think this is what they pulled out of, out of the first century study of the Old Testament. Have you ever noticed how, how some people have an issue with this? You'll talk to people and they'll be like, it's just, I just don't like Christianity because the Old Testament God is so different than the New Testament God. Like we have that, you know, people, people they'll read something in the Old Testament and they're like, the two gods are so different. Like I, I just don't know. And usually when I hear that, I say, yeah, I, I totally agree they are. Like, and, and actually I think the Bible agrees with you as well. I think the Bible, the Bible bears that out. And, and, uh, and I think, I think that's what happened to the New Testament writers because something in the, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus convinced these guys of the love of God. Like something in, Jesus's, in, in the way Jesus did things grabbed a hold of these guys and said, it's all about love. It's, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Like something had to change them. And I, and I think it was Jesus telling stories like the prodigal son story. And the, and the Good Samaritan and even the wheat and the tares and, and stories like this, like the lost sheep. And especially I think it comes from a passage like this in John. If you have known me, you have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said, have you been with me so long? And yet... You have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And this is huge. This is huge on our perception of God. Um, we have this, uh, this desire to see God in the whole picture, to, see, to understand the whole picture. But Hebrews says this, and I think this is one of the most important verses that barely fit on the screen in the New Testament. God, who in various times, at various times and in various ways, spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets, has in these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heirs of all things, through whom uh, also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his purpose, and beholding all things by the world, by the word of his power, when he had... Uh, had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So this is, this is, uh, this I think is one of the fundamental, this is where I think the new, that the Bible agrees that the Bible gives different pictures of God. Because the writer of Hebrews says, yes, God revealed himself in various ways at various times. Yes, we saw pieces and pictures. We saw little slivers. We saw him act in a particular context with a particular group of people, yes. You've seen various, various glimpses at various times. 
But then came Jesus. And Jesus gave us uh, first of like the, the, the most focused picture of God. Because it says that he, that he came and spoke to us. He didn't speak to prophets. He didn't speak to, um, to, to, to priests and, and to people. He spoke to us. Jesus came in the flesh so God could speak directly. He gave a focused revelation. He also says that, um, that, uh, that this is the, the, the most complete and fullest revelation. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his purpose. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the fullest picture of God. So yeah, at times we get glimpses, at times we get little slivers and pictures and peaks, but Jesus, the Bible says, is the fullest revelation of God. And finally, said, or, or finally, so this is the final revelation. He said, in these last days, these last days, as though there's not more days to come. We're still in these last days, not in this particular time, but in, and Jesus said, from now on, you've seen the Father. Like now that you've seen me, I'm the final picture. I'm the final revelation of God. So what's that mean to us? It means whatever picture you have of God, whatever picture you come up with of God, when you read a Bible story, when, you, when someone's talking about God, if the picture you come up with doesn't look like Jesus, you've got the wrong picture. If you read an Old Testament story and you're like, how could God do that? I don't even like that. Blah, blah, blah. If, if, if you don't look at that story through the lens of the cross and say, I don't get it, but I know this is the God who would sacrifice himself for people. So though, it, though it's hard to see in this moment, that's the same God. I have to know that there's something here that I don't know about. There's something here. There's some context here that I don't get. There's something here I don't understand because this is the same God who showed up in Jesus and who, who healed lepers and who spoke to Samaritan women and who healed Roman soldiers. And, and this is the same Jesus who went to the cross because of great love. And so basically what, what Hebrews is saying is any other picture... Any other picture is the wrong picture. Like if you come to any other conclusion, if you put all the data together and you come to any conclusion that doesn't look like the love and compassion and sacrifice of Jesus, then, then you came to the wrong conclusion. Go back and redo the math. Because that's not the right, that's not the right Jesus. Jesus is the, the absolute focused and, and fullest and final revelation of God. It, there, there are no other revelations. It's, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. So according to Jesus, in this parable, if your picture of God does not include a, a shepherd who would, who would abandon everything for someone who's lost, then you've missed it. So when you pray, what God do you picture? Do, do, you, do you picture this, this benevolent God who... who, who at least, like us, wants what's best for his kids and wants joy for them at the same time if possible. Sometimes you've got to take the joy away to save, you know, keep them from sticking their finger in an outlet. But, you know, who, who wants what's best for his kids? Is that the God you pray to? Is that what you see when you pray to God? 
Or is it this like miser who you somehow have to twist his arm to get, you know, a little blessing to fall out? Like, who do you picture? When you're praying for your kids, who do you picture? A God who loves them infinitely more than you could ever dream of? Or, or this God who's aloof and you, and you feel like you've got to get his attention and, and somehow drag his attention to your kids so that, so that he can bless them? When you mess up, when you completely blow it and you have to make confession, does, do you picture a God who, who steps in and says, I'll take that one. Let me, I got this. I'll take the punishment for that one. I've got this, like Jesus did? Or do you picture a father who runs to you and wraps you in a cloak and says, I don't even want to hear your excuses. I want to throw a party because you're back. Because if not, you're picturing the wrong God. And the big one is when you're going through something hard, when life is hell, real life hell, how do you, how do you picture God? I've been spending some time in the Joseph story and and for the first time ever, I saw that when, when his, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery and they took his cloak and they kind of tore it up and put some goat's blood on it and brought it back to Jacob, they never lied to Jacob. I always thought they came back and, you know, and they, granted they presented bad evidence, but they just showed him and they said, hey, you recognize this? Like, we found this. Like, did you, did, you know about this? And Jacob filled in the blanks. It says that Jacob says, a wild animal has destroyed my son and, and, and yada, yada, Joseph is gone from me. He filled in all the blanks because he couldn't picture, number one, the truth, which was that his other sons had sold Joseph into slavery, but the truer truth was that God was basically saying, 20 years or so, you're going to need a Savior. In 20 years or so, this story ends if I don't send someone to Egypt who, who, can, who can store up some grain and then who can welcome the children of Israel in to feed them and save them. Never even crossed Jacob's mind. You guys have all heard that cheesy cliche, if you can't see God's hand, trust his heart. Like, could it have been possible that Jacob could have said, man, this evidence looks terrible. It looks horrible. But I know my God. I know my God. And, and I know that if, if, even if my son is gone, I love when one of the New Testament commentators talks about Abraham. And this isn't in the original story, but he throws it in there. That Abraham was, had so much faith in God that he knew even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, the story was going to end well. Like when, I, when Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac, and it doesn't say anything. It just says he lifted the knife and he was getting ready to do it. And then he found the ram. The voice stopped him and he, he found the ram that took Isaac's place. But when the New Testament writer steps in, he goes, Abraham believing that even if God had to raise him from the dead, the promise was in Isaac. And, and so you see Abraham and you see Jacob and there's two different stories. You got one going, this seems crazy to kill my son in whom the promise rests. And yet I know my God. I know my God, and he's not that kind of God. He's the kind of God that finishes the story well. Then you got Jacob, who just immediately jumps to the worst possible conclusion. So when things are going bad, which God do you see? The last thing in this passage that I definitely want to pull out is that the shepherd finds the sheep, the sheep does not find the shepherd. That's a major detail. 
in here. The sheep wanders because that's what sheep do because they're dumb. So the sheep just wanders off and the shepherd has to do the finding. And this is what makes Jesus so special. This is what, this is what makes Jesus different. I, I, I love studying other world religions, but certainly no expert, but I know that all religion, including most of Christianity, is built on this thing we call soteriology. It's, it's a word that means the study of salvation, the study of the process and means of salvation. And, uh, and every religion is built on this. It's, it's built on the, the path or way or means by which you acquire salvation. They all have something different you're being saved from, saved from suffering, saved from hell, saved from, you know, whatever. But it's the means by which you acquire salvation, the means by which you achieve enlightenment, the, the, the means by which you make it to nirvana, the means by which you um, enter paradise and all your virgins, you know, the, whatever, the means by which you escape hell and get into heaven. Religion is built on showing us how to get there. And Jesus does it different. Jesus never came and he still does not come to show us what we must do to get to God. Jesus came to show us what God did to get to us. And that's the whole difference. Jesus came to show us what God would do, even a cross, what God would do to get to us. Anything in the, any, anything in the New Testament that seems exclusive, that seems like Jesus is saying, it's my way or the highway, you know. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And, and we read those passages and we feel like they're, they're these exclusive, do it the way I say or you go to hell kind of passages. And that's not what Jesus is doing at all. He's basically saying, there's, there's no one else coming for you. I'm the one that came for you. There's no one else coming. Like, you don't have to do it my way. It's not my way or the highway. I just, I came for you and I'm the only one coming for you. So how do we respond to this? um, When you have 16 kids, sometimes you lose some of them. You just, I don't know. It's just, it's just a reality. And so we've lost um, our kids quite a few times, certain ones. And, uh, and in, in fact, in the, when I was asking Esther permission to tell you guys that, because she's prideful, you got to pray for her. Um, I didn't know if she'd want you guys to know that she's uh, lost her kids before, but um, we started kind of rehashing <laughs> how many kids we've lost and gone through the huge panic of, of misplacing a child. And so, and, and she reminded me of one I'd completely forgotten where Hannah, when she was just a, a toddler, we were at my grandparents' house and we let Hannah go out and play with the older boys and they were all playing in the backyard and, Assuming the older boys were watching Hannah and all the older boys come back in and no Hannah. And so we like completely lost our minds. We ran outside. My grandma's got this huge field with some woods. We ran down the woods. And we're sprinting around. I've run down the street and back several times. She's gone. She is gone. And so someone's on the phone. We're starting to call. And a little old lady, three houses down, comes walking out her front door with my daughter. And so, of course, I go running, and Hannah, Hannah, 
she goes, I, I kind of remember. I remember you were real angry. And I was like, angry? I was weeping. I like, I like hugged you tighter than I think I ever. She was like, no, but your, your forehead was all crinkled up. I just remember your forehead being crinkled up and thinking, that's the angry thing. Like, that's the, like she has that memory of like, that's what dad does when he's angry. You know, but, uh, but apparently, I talked to the little old lady, apparently her screen door was open and Hannah just saw that she was watching TV and came in and sat down to watch TV. And so the, the old lady got her a cookie first, you know, didn't take her out immediately, probably took a few minutes getting her a cookie while I'm having a heart attack. Anyway, so uh, I'd forgotten all about that one. Apparently I'd blocked that one out. But uh, yeah, so we've had conversations with people who have also um, misplaced children for a little while. And, uh, and it's always a, um, an interesting conversation. <laughs> I've yet to meet anybody who's lost as many as we have, so still holding that record. Um, but it's, it's interesting to have those conversations, and maybe you felt that I was talking about Hannah. You can, like, feel your blood pressure, like, building, and, and the anxiety. I saw it in, in, uh, in Brandy's face. And, uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an intense thing. But, but Jesus doesn't even go there. Because people might uh, might go, of course I'm going to chase my kid down and I don't give a rat's butt about anybody else. He, he takes it to, to your pets almost. And I know some people have those family pets that are just like family. I'm not one of those people. I don't get it. I love animals. I love playing with them. But I don't get the family thing. I never have gotten it. But that's cool. Whatever. But Jesus, he takes it more to the property side. Your sheep. Like your, your investment. Like how valuable is that to you? And remember that initial question, who is the greatest? That's what started this. Who is the greatest? So let's imagine you walk up to a mom who has just realized she's got a kid missing. And she's in that, that panicked, try not to think the worst, think positive, check all the natural places, you know, try, try not to go there, try not to go there. She's in that, that extreme chaos moment, completely freaking out. And you grab her and you grab her by the shoulders and and you say, hey, hold on. And she came to make eye contact. You know that thing where somebody's like so in it they can't even acknowledge your existence. And you finally get her to lock into you. And she looks you in the eyes. What? And you go, which one of your kids is the favorite? Because that's what I think this question was like for Jesus. Who is the greatest? What the hell are you talking about? Who is the greatest? I'm on a mission to save what is lost. Who is the greatest? Is that even a question? I think that mom, if she's like any mom that, that I could ever think of, would I don't think she'd say it, but she would think, I don't have a favorite. Do you, do you even have kids? That's not how it works. And the second thing she would say is, do you even have any clue what's happening right now? My kid is lost. And I think most of our theological questions probably hit Jesus this way. God, should we sprinkle people or dunk them? Are you kidding me? My kid is lost. You think I care how the water gets on there? So in response, as we go to the table and as we sing, I want you to wrestle with a what if. 
What if God actually loves us that much? Like the cross much. What if that's true? What if God loves your kids that much? What if God loves that, that coworker of yours that you can't stand that much? What if God would light up every shadow and climb any mountain and kick down any wall and tear down any lie to get to you, to get to people who don't know him? What would it change? What if it's all true? Spoiler alert, it, it is. But what would that change in your heart? What would that change in, in your focus? What would that change in the way you do life and think about people? and drive like what if it's true I believe the cross is the complete and final picture of how much God loves us I think it's true